still in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 4, and we get three more parables today. Um, In order to sort of set the stage for where this is going, let me tell you a true story about something that happened to me when I was but a teenager, which is 10, 12 years ago. (laughs) And uh, I was in a little quartet of guys. Uh, We were all, no, I take that back. Three of the four of us were preacher's kids, and the other was a really good football player. But he had a great voice, and we sang in a bunch of different churches, and we did a little mini tour all the way into Oklahoma and Texas and Arizona. And in Oklahoma City, of all places, out on the strip downtown, we were invited into a nightclub that had been turned into a place of outreach to hippies. Yes, folks, there were hippies back when I was a kid. And that was kind of part of the Jesus movement time when there were some things coming out of the West Coast. Calvary Chapel was becoming a thing. There were lots of people who were discovering that there was life in Christ and they were developing a new type of music that was hipper and cool and groovy. And uh, it was that era. And so we sang a concert. It was mildly attended. I wouldn't say there were a lot of people there, but there were enough to, to be grateful for us. But a couple of reformed hippies came and said, can we talk to you for a second afterwards? And I said, sure. He said, we'd like to pray for you too, dude. And I said, that'd be great. And so we allowed them to pray for us. And he said, now I'm going to read a passage to you because I feel like God's put this on my heart. And I said, okay. And it was from Matthew 10, verse 18. And it was talking about the apostles when Jesus was saying, and you're going to be called before governors and kings to be a witness to them. And I said, okay, that's incredible. And he goes, you know what that means though, right? And I said, I think so. I didn't have a clue. (laughs) And he goes, I just want you to think about it and pray about that because it's important. And that's it. And he kind of left it. I'm thinking he may have been an angel. I don't know. But I thought about it, and it wasn't until quite some time later when I actually found the context because I couldn't remember the address to that passage. And I read the next verse, the very next verse, verse 19, when it says, But when they arrest you and drag you before these folks, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you utterance at that time. That's how you will become my witnesses to these folks. And I went, oh. I wanted to find that guy and say, dude, I get it. (laughs) It dawns on me now what you're talking about. He was trying to say, life is not going to be full of glorious times in music and on the mountaintop and when people are telling you how good you sing and all that stuff, if you're truly going to be a believer for Christ and you're putting your faith on the line, you're going to encounter persecution. It's going to happen. People are going to disagree with you over things, especially on my account, and you should be prepared for that. So it took me a long time for that to sink in, and that's the whole idea about these parables. Jesus is talking about a process. And it's a process that I'm so grateful that he's patient, so much more patient than I would have been had I been put in charge. (laughs) And I'm so grateful that he gives us these parables to help us know because some of us are still in process. We're maybe in that transformation process, the sanctification where he's chipping off the rough edges, helping us to become more and more like Christ if we are already a believer. And it may be that we've got people that we know that we love dearly that we've been praying for because we want them, we desperately want them to come to faith in Christ as well. 
And I think this is going to help give us confidence and faith that God is the one who is involved in that process. So let's look at those parables. And I'd like to just read right through it, uh, Mark 4, 21 through 34, and then let's unpack each of the three parables together, shall we? First, a lamp on a stand. He said to them, Do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Hearkening back to what we heard in the very first parable where he began with that word hear, and he ended with the word hear, same word for listen. And then he says, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. And then he starts to explain that a bit. He says, whoever has, has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And we're going to see in another translation that he's not talking about stuff. He's talking about understanding. And then he goes on to the growing seed, verse 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. He's already given us the soils example in the first parable, so he's going back to the seeds again, but this time with a different slant. He says, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, and then the head, and then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. A gradual, mysterious process. And then the mustard seed. Verse 30. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet, when it's planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, meaning in his early phase of ministry. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is God's Word, and God, we'd appreciate it if you would enlighten us with it and illuminate the truth that's coming from it. First, the lamp on a stand. What is concealed is meant to be revealed. God did not want to hide himself from everybody in humankind. He's not playing games with us. He is a revelatory God, which means that he intends for all this stuff that should be revealed to come to light one day. Uh, used to be a little over the top in how we would do birthday parties when our kids were three and four, and we would do treasure hunts, and we would hide different clues in different places around the house, and then we would write these funny rhyming clues so that we could read them out loud and hopefully make them simple enough that they could understand what the next clue was leading them to, and they would have to run over here and find something, and then they would find the next clue, and it was so exciting, and then finally they would get to the final clue, which was the big present. We even went so far as to hide a bicycle at a neighbor's house two blocks away. So it took two hours for them to do the treasure hunt before they said, can you please just show me where the present is? 
But it was fun because what was concealed was meant to be revealed. And God does that. And we understand now that the treasure that we're hunting for, including one of Jesus' own parables, is Jesus himself. He's the treasure. It's like that guy who found a treasure in a field and he went and sold everything that he had so that he could own the field so that then he would possess that wonderful treasure because it was worth more than everything else that he might have had. Well, Jesus' identity and his mission was also meant to be revealed. It was meant to come to light. But it was going to be coming to light gradually, so he started with parables so that those who wanted to know more could be given more. And if you were hungry for more information and you would ask them about it like the disciples did, you were going to get more information and you would start to know him deeper and better. And the same is true with all of those of us who have taken that step, if you're a believer. You want to know more about Christ. There will never come a point in a real true believer's life when they, he or she will say, you know, I think I know everything there is to know about Christ now, and so I'm good to go. Uh, no reason for me to be reading the Bible anymore, and why go to church when I could be out golfing? So <laughs> I think I'm fine. Anybody who really wants to know somebody that they care the most about and who's going to be with them in eternity, we're going to be joint heirs with that person. We're going to want to know everything we can about them, which means that we're going to continually have an even deeper hunger for more and more of that living bread. Here's the New Living Translation of verse 25 in Mark 4 because it shows what he's talking about in terms of not having stuff taken away from you, but knowledge or understanding. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. So those who truly want to know Jesus, we're going to be hungry. We're going to be diving into discussions, Bible studies, all the things that we can to get to know him more and more. Jesus even said this in Matthew 7, 7 and 8. I wrote a song about it, never have uh, published it yet. Somehow I don't think it ever will make a hit, but it was, uh, keep on knocking, keep on asking, keep on seeking and you will find. You got to get the guitar in so you can really feel it. That was in the post-hippie phase when I was writing that. It was a folk kind of tune, but that comes from Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And the tense of those words was continual, which means keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. For everyone who continually asks continues to receive. Those who continually seek will continually find, and the one who continually knocks, the door will continually be open to you. Not referring to the initial salvation only, but to this knowledge and the depth of a love relationship with God who loves us enough to give his life for us so that we get deeper and deeper into relationship with him. Jesus found himself by a group of people around him, some who just wanted free food, some who wanted to see a miracle, and others who were really interested in finding out what is he meaning with these parables. And so they would hang out long enough to be able to ask him and go deeper with that. I read just this last week from another pastor whose writings I appreciate because he takes me deeper and gives me thoughts that I hadn't had before. He says, this is a good litmus test to see if somebody truly is trying to continually listen for more of what Jesus has for them. This is how you can tell if they have grasped what Jesus has taught about forgiveness and grace. If someone fails, do they hide from God 
and try to clean up their act in their own strength? Or do they own up to their failure and say, God, yeah, I blew it. I am so sorry about that. Do they own their failure or do they try to minimize it and push it away or blame others? Because that's a big difference in how people deal with their failure and their sin. Those who understand that God is a gracious God and they understand 1 John 1, 9, they'll say, yes, we're going to blow it. We all do. But each time we do, we don't have to hide from God. You can't anyway. It's fruitless. And we know that he is going to forgive us. And so because of his love and his grace, he just keeps pouring out more grace. We're talking about the growth encounter just this morning. So I think that's a great litmus test. And those of us who have been in workplaces where there are people who don't want to own their mistakes, we'll know that it's difficult to work around people like that because they become toxic. And they're always blaming other people, but they will never own up to their own fault. And God is trying to show us that if we'll understand what he does through his gracious act of forgiveness to us, each time we fail, we can keep failing forward rather than becoming toxic and avoiding taking responsibility. So we can hide sin or we can reveal it. That's the difference in how people who really know Christ deal with sin and failure. Told this story a long time ago, switched a couple of details to protect the innocent, but there was a 16-year-old kid who got his driver's license, like the guy... Uh, I can't remember if it was a guy or a girl because I couldn't see enough inside the tinted windshield of the car. But last Sunday, I was on my way to church Sunday morning, and I got right up here to Bemis and Whitaker, and there was a student driver car coming up. And I could tell it was probably the very first time this student had been behind the wheel. <laughs> they crept up to the stop sign. They got to the stop sign before I did, so they had the right-of-way. They didn't have a blinker on, so I thought maybe they were going to go straight and go across onto the dirt road portion of Bemis. So I just thought, well, I'm just going to wait and watch the show. <laughs> and so I stopped, and I waited, and I was looking, and the, the teacher who was in the passenger side was giving instructions to the student, and the student was looking wide-eyed and white-gripping, knuckling, you know, the uh, steering wheel. And then instead of going straight, all of a sudden, the blinker came on, and the student decided he was going to attempt a turn. He was like, oh, no, here we go. Turning right, good luck, everybody. And he started to take it so wide that he almost started to go straight toward me, even though I was stopped. And then it was like, oh, I have to go more than that. And then he, he twisted it a little bit farther, and he got past it, and he started it. And I just kind of waved at the teacher, and the teacher went, <laughs> okay, thanks for being patient. But that's what it's like when you're first getting your driver's license, and this kid went a little too close to a post and broke the mirror on the passenger side of his dad's pickup truck. So he thought, man, I don't want to get in trouble. I want to try to hide it, and if I do get in trouble, is he going to take away my privilege, and I, am I not going to be able to drive the truck for a couple of weeks or something? So he thought, I know, I'll just park it really close to the wall in the, in the garage, and dad will never know, right? He won't see it. And when he finally does see it, maybe he'll think it's vandalism or something like that. So I parked the truck over there, and for two days, I was racked with guilt. This kid is thinking, I got this guilt. But dad never said anything. So he's thinking, well, maybe I'm off the hook. But he just couldn't sleep at night. He was still racked with guilt. So finally, he just went to his dad, and he fessed up. <laughs> he said, Dad, I, I just have to admit something to you. I'm sure that you've recognized by now that the mirror is busted on the pickup. Dad just shook his head. He goes, well, I did that, and I was so afraid to tell you, but I did that, and I want to do whatever it is that I need to do to make it right. And the dad just kind of chuckled and goes, son, I knew you had done that. 
The minute you parked it in the garage, I knew that you had done that. But I was just waiting for you to come to me. Yes, I forgive you. And because it's an old truck, we can get a used part from the junkyard, and I'll show you how we together can fix this thing. So help me on Saturday. We'll put it back on. All will be good. See, there's a good parable there, I think, from real life that shows us what Jesus is showing us about grace, that it's when we come to him and we just own up to something and we agree with him about what he already knew in the first place. We're the ones that the weight is lifted because he's already forgiven us, but we need to come to him and say, God, I don't want to mess up this relationship that we have going on. That's what grace is all about. So what about those who have the light? How can we shine that light into others' hearts? I've been praying. I have a list. Uh, my podcast partner, Rick, if you're watching, thank you for this good advice. The last couple of episodes, he has urged people to write down people that you're specifically praying for that you would really like for them to come to the light and to see and grasp God's grace so they can become saved and to trust Christ with their lives. But how can we shine the light of God into other people's lives? A lot of people credit St. Francis of Assisi as saying this, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I have actually said, I think I have actually preached that St. Francis said that. I read something later that said, no, nah, I don't think he ever said that. <laughs> We've credited him for doing that. There's no actual evidence that he wrote it or said it, but it does seem to carry out what his life was like, and so it fits what his lifestyle was. It's a great concept. But you can also tell from all of his writings that he used words and actions, and both are necessary, and we see that in the Gospels. I think that's abundantly clear. It's good for us to say, well, I'm just living my lifestyle, and I'll let that be the light. And that's good. That's a good starting place, and we should. But I think also we need to be looking for those green light opportunities of the Holy Spirit when we can just say a quick word. And I got something that as I was preparing this message, it's fun to see God's timing when he just sends something right into your inbox. Uh, Stephanie and I had a brief conversation about how some people would say, I don't know if God still talks to us. I think there are different ways that he can get our attention, and he speaks to us. And he sent me this from a friend of mine that I hadn't heard from in a long time. Uh, went to college with him. We played trombone together. He's a preacher's kid. Nice guy. He is a minister of worship down in Missouri right now. And Kevin sends me this thing. He says, you need to act when God tells you. And he shared this with his choir as uh, a little bit of a devotional. So let me just read it because I want to get it right. Kevin says, we got to the motel about 6.30 p.m., tired from the day's activities and the drive. We were behind two people waiting to check in at the desk at our motel. There was a young lady there in her early 20s. She seemed to be having a long day. We finally got to the desk and heard her tired question, do you have a reservation? I shared my usual, good morning, because Kevin does that no matter what time of the day it is. It's like Mike had said, bonjour, when it was supposed to be bonsoir down in Haiti. But he said, good morning. And her reply was, good evening. Do you have a reservation? Being me, I asked her, have you had a long day? Well, the morning was okay, she said. I added, the, the afternoon and the evening had been pretty long. She shook her head. We exchanged a few niceties, got our keys, headed up to the room. Bingo! The keys didn't work. Back downstairs. Good morning, I chirped. 
Good morning, she replied, this time with a little smile. Um, our keys don't work. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll get you some new ones. Thank you very much. I headed back upstairs, chuckling this time that she had actually answered good morning when I said good morning this time. We got into our room, started to get comfortable. Time for some channel surfing. TV didn't work. Nothing. Me being a guy, I checked the wires to see if everything's plugged in okay. Tried to turn off the box and turn it back on again. The IT specialty. Still nothing. This time it was my sister Brenda's turn. She calls down to the front desk and... I discerned from listening to her part of the conversation that the lady behind the front desk was going to be coming up to try to fix that. We also discerned that she was the only one working that night. She was trying to do everything in the whole motel. After half an hour or so, I headed back downstairs because we still hadn't seen her, and I got a smile from her this time. Yes, sir, how can I help you? Well, our TV is out. Oh, man, she said, I was supposed to be up there. I'm so sorry. Things got busy, and he goes, it's okay. It's all right. Everything's fine. No problem. Is there anything we can do to help fix it? She goes, the easiest thing would be for me just to get you a new room. And he goes, that's great. That'd be fine. Thank you. She got the keys ready for us. Before I left, I told her that I would pray that her evening would get better and that it would be quiet without too many interruptions and that something good would happen just for her. It's a pretty specific thing to tell somebody. She shared a slight smile and I was off to move our stuff to the new room. And then we got moved in and settled in, and God said, at least I'm pretty sure it was God who put this thought in my mind. So, Kevin, what are you going to do about it? Okay, but you're kidding, right? I mean, I just found a good show to watch, finally, and my shoes are off. Silence. Okay, I'll go find something. <laughs> He said, it's funny, isn't it, how God can change your attitude without speaking a single word? Been there. There was a little store right beside the motel, so I walked to the store hoping to find a cookie or something that I could bring back to the young lady at the front desk. Never did catch her name. Inside the store was a bakery. There were pastries and breads and mouth-watering smells, so many decisions, and I settled on a raspberry cream cheese pastry and a tiny container of ice cream. The one minute back to the motel was short and sweet, and I went to the front desk only to discover that she had retreated around the corner and into the office. Me being me, I just went ahead and stepped right inside the door to the office, and the expression on her face was a mixture of fear and wonder. I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't have come in that abruptly. Maybe she thinks I'm going to kidnap her or something. And then he said, I just thought I'd bring you these things. I hope you enjoy them. But if you don't enjoy them, don't tell me. Just throw them away. And then I started to leave. And over my shoulder, I said, have a good evening. And I heard, thank you. On the way back to my room, I wondered if I said everything I should have said. Could I have gone deeper? Should I have shared my faith in more detail? I never prayed with her. Should I have? I just told her I would pray for her, but did I actually... You know, I just, I kick myself sometimes for thinking these things, but I wonder, did I do enough? I never once told her about Jesus. Did I miss an opportunity? Was I sensitive to God's leading? I may never know. I do hope and pray that somehow God will use my small actions and a few words and a kind gesture to get through to her. I love to tell the story, he says. 
Sometimes I wonder if I fail to tell the story often enough or in detail enough, clearly enough, to those around me. I hope that my actions continue to speak loudly. I think Kevin gets it, and I think Kevin struggles with the same thing that all of us at times struggle with. I would really love to be able to share the light of Christ with others and to be so, so clear in my sharing that they can see it and grasp it. But it's interesting that Jesus uses the analogy of light in his parables. Light is visible. You can't hear it. And I think it's good that Jesus, as an audio-visual demonstration of Christ, used both words and actions, and sometimes his actions spoke so much more loudly than words. And so actions still are useful, and God uses them. I watched a YouTube, watched a YouTube video of a biochemist this was intriguing to me because I know nothing about biochemistry. But I was intrigued by how it was titled, and so I thought, I'm going to check this guy out. It was a 30-minute video. His name was Cy Garte, the biochemist, who grew up with some militant atheist parents. I mean militant. They were the kind who said, don't go to a church, a Christian church, because if you do, all they're going to do is try to, to show you where you're going to go for eternity, and it's not the good place. He said, so Christians are all about just power and control. That's all it is. It's just trying to, you know, get emotion to whip you up into some sort of a frenzy. But none of that's real. That's what I grew up with. He said, but then I got into biochemistry. And I was in different kinds of chemistry until I started finding out I'm really intrigued about the chemicals necessary for life to exist. I don't know why I was interested in that, but I was. He said, so I started looking into it, and the more I looked into it, the more I saw this beautiful complexity and orderliness that I could not explain. And I started thinking questions like, how is this even possible? And how could this have come about without some sort of outside design or intervention? He said, it was plaguing me, and I didn't know quite where to go for some of the answers, but I was continually seeing more and more as I looked into biochemistry things that had to do with light, and he said there's this kind of evolution, but chemical evolution is very different from the kind of evolution we think about, this little macro evolution, and you've got to actually interject something new into the system. You can't have a chemical that just becomes another chemical. That doesn't happen. He said, so I was really reeling from all these questions and starting to wonder what's going on here, and then a friend of mine had invited me to attend, bum, 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 a church, and it was a Catholic church of all things, so I went expecting to hear this guy tell me where I was going to go for eternity, and it was not going to be the good place. And instead, this priest gave a homily that was only 12 minutes long, and it was all about love. And I went away thinking, that wasn't that bad. And I also thought, that's not what I expected. And so I went back a couple of times, and then I started actually becoming more curious about some of the things he had started to talk about. And eventually, over time, it was a gradual experience Hearkening back now to Jesus' parables, it's a mysterious thing when the seed germinates and then it starts to stalk comes up and then the, the head of the grain. He said, eventually, I finally got to the place where I realized, I get it. I'm ready. I'm ready to take that step. And so it became visibly ex expressed through his life. And I love this quote from Madeline L'Engle. It says, she says, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. 
That was what Jesus did for us. He was revealing a light that was so lovely that we just had to know the source of that. That's how I think our actions can be, and when the time is right, also our words. Sai is a living example of the second parable in this section in Mark. The seed of truth began to germinate in Sai's mind and heart, and it was a mystery how it was happening, but it was happening. He didn't even see it happening for himself for the longest time. It was so gradual and so almost imperceptible. Somehow he was being drawn to the light of God's truth. And with him, it didn't start by Christians preaching to them and knocking a gigantic family Bible over his head and telling them what a sinner he was. God reveals himself in many ways, including through his creation. He speaks loudly through his creation, and Sai got that. That was the first light he was exposed to. He was seeing everything in God's creation. It was becoming so unmistakable that there had to have been an intelligent designer. He saw symmetry and synchronicity, meaningful and even causal connections between things that he had not seen previous to that. He marveled at the precise timing of events happening, not only in reproduction, but also in our planets and the solar system and this great universe of ours and the distance from a sun that would allow life and the four seasons and the planetary rotations, everything that God had designed so supernaturally and incredibly that we would not even be able to exist apart from God's intervention. And he said, and I even saw something that was subjective, artistry. Things that I was seeing in biochemistry were artistic. They were works of art. And I thought, this cannot be by chance. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. Sai wasn't understanding how it was happening, but God was speaking to him. And a couple of the people that I pray for, and the, one of them who became a believer, found Christ in very much the same way. He was a scientist. I'm still praying for another guy who fits that same category, and I'm praying that one day the light will become much greater and brighter, and it will be so unmistakable and so lovely that he's going to want to know the source. And then this gradual process that he's talking about here in these parables too. First, a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. That's talking about the fruitfulness that happens. With Sai, the harvest came when he finally trusted in Christ. We tend to think of the great harvest happening when a huge thronging group of people will come to faith in Christ, the great revival to come, and it may come, and it may come soon. I pray it does. But it happens initially with one individual, one individual at a time. That's the harvest. And then there's the mustard seed, and he was saying that it starts tiny. If you've seen any of them, they're little itty-bitty things, and they can grow into this massive, huge plant. That also is to the same thing with individuals and collectively as the body of Christ. It can start with a tiny little seed of faith inside an individual until finally they get it and they have seen that lovely light and want to know its source. Well, God, if he displayed the light, his glory to us through creation, then he's the one who has started casting those seeds onto different types of soil. So who's the original farmer? It's God. He's the one as well on a huge scale, who's been casting these seeds out. He started through creation itself, and he continues to do so. He sent us his own son, the word who became flesh, was the final word, the logos. And then we also have the inspired written word. He's constantly busy revealing. He doesn't stop. He's relentless in revealing. So that gives me hope, because this light who came into the world, even though people love darkness and try to shut that light out, he is so relentless that it's going to show up. 
Many people just don't see the light, even though it's available to them. That's why I'm praying that all of us will shine our light through our actions and, when necessary, our words, and keep praying for those folks because God's the one doing the work, not us. Through everything God made, we want those folks to see clearly His invisible qualities that Paul talked about in Romans 1. These parables for we believers, those of us who have seen the light of truth about Jesus, become parables of trust. We can trust that God, the original source of this light, is still revealing light and will continue to do so, especially into the hearts of those that we're praying for and that we're desperate for them to come to truth. Where are you in the process? Something that I made a a commitment to do more of back in the pandemic was to give an actual invitation because I realized I'd fallen out of that habit. And because I never know when somebody has reached that point when they might hear just the right words to say, yeah, I'm ready to take that step. And sometimes there are people who may have actually even gone to church for a long time and they thought maybe they were a Christian, but they'd never really taken a step to say, yeah, I've never actually trusted Christ as my Savior. So if you fall into that category or if you need to take that step, you could say a prayer something like this. Let's pray together. You don't have to say it out loud, but say something like this from your heart. Dear Jesus, I recognize that you are the source of light, the source of truth, and I realize that I need you. I need you to forgive my sins, to give me that grace that I keep hearing about, and that your light is so lovely that I need to know you who are the source, and I want you to start guiding my life because I know that you can give me a purpose for this life that nobody else can give. And I thank you for your forgiveness for the fact that you've promised to continue to work in my heart by sending the Holy Spirit to indwell within me and that you will continue that work until I see you face to face. Thank you for all of that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If, by chance, one of you prayed that kind of prayer, I would love to hear about it. Please let me know that. And for the rest of you, I would like you to agree with me that we can pray for those people that we're praying for, that they'll come to faith in Christ, hopeful, based on a hope that God is the one doing the revealing, that God will be relentless in continuing to reveal that light to others so they too will have that imperceptible growth that Jesus talked about until one day, like Cy the scientist, they may say, I get it now and I need him. So let's continue to pray for those around us. And all God's people said...